Good morning. The scripture reading today is short and sweet. It's from the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm fairly sure uh, that everybody here knows me, but if for some reason you don't, my name is Ann Kopp. And uh, Todd is having a great time with his family in Disneyland, and so uh, we got the B or C team on today, which is okay. James described the speaker at Anvil as being extremely charismatic and amazingly hilarious. That's not exactly what you'll probably experience this morning from me, but that's okay. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at identity. Um, It's profoundly important. God has some really important ideas around that. And so I took a look and went through uh, some journals, psychology today in particular, to look at some definitions of identity. So this is what they say. Identity is a process of discovery and creation of who you want to be. For a few people, um, few people choose their identities. Another one said, instead, they simply internalize the values of their parents and the dominant culture. Another definition similar said, it refers to the global understanding a person has of themselves. Self-identity is composed of self-assessments, such as your personality attributes, the knowledge of your skills and abilities, your occupation and hobbies, and the awareness of your physical attributes. Identity is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And it's an extremely big deal to God. So who are you? Perhaps uh, one of the greatest forces that impacts our sense of identity is what people say about us, their opinions, their comments, their evaluations, their judgments. So we're social beings, and in some regards, that makes sense. We're going to talk with one another. We're going to get feedback from another. Somebody's going to tell you you're really great at that. Somebody's going to tell you you're not. The difficulty with self-assessment by looking at what other people think of us is that it seems to me that it's very tenuous It's inconsistent, it's conditional, and it can be completely wrong. We're inundated by media, social media. I am what I tweet, I am what I post. I am not slagging social media or any kind of devices whatsoever. That is, um, it's divisive, it's naive. They're tools 
and the extent to the way in which we use them gives them power, nothing more, nothing less. But when you see people posting everything about their life that makes it look like they are something, when maybe they aren't, or maybe it's a portion, it's not the problem of the device. It's got to do with who maybe we want to be, who we see ourselves to be, who we think we have to be. The words and actions uh, that others give towards us, their evaluation of us can become lodged in our memory. Sometimes it's pushed back to the memory, but it has this ability to provide reruns, tapes that go over and over in our minds. For some of us, the tapes still play. Maybe we rationalize them away. At worst, we believe them. Why don't you look like them? My folks told me I'd never amount to anything. Why am I not able to do everything everybody else does? I'm too old to be any use. I'm the sum total of my declining health. I had one really important job. I was to raise my kids, and I didn't do a good job. All I am is divorce. All I am is a loser. I'm a disappointment. I'm not so great. I get what I deserve. If only people knew the real me, I can't really be acceptable to anybody. It's interesting, the parent piece, you know. We all get uh, parented by imperfect people. It takes more credentials to drive a car than it does to have a kid. You've got to take more tests. You've got to fill in more forms. When you leave the hospital with a baby, the only thing you have to know is how to give them a bath. That's a big deal. Nurses watch you give them a bath. So apparently your baby's hygiene is more important than your capacity to learn all the skills you need to be a good parent. We do the best we can. And some of you may have heard some things from parents that's stuck in your mind or from others. So the influences that come from God are inspirational because of who he is. They bring life, creativity, ideas. They're good. The influences, and we don't talk about this very often, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, But the influences that come from Satan are the kinds of things they don't inspire. In fact, the three things that he's able to do are destroy, pervert, and destroy. And that's his commitment to you. He can't touch God, certainly isn't that powerful but he'll mess with you as much as he can. And in those three things and in those three areas, he's completely committed to doing that to you. So our verses today are from, uh, as Tierney read, uh, 1 Peter. Let's just read them together one more time. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you're going to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. Not just any kind of light, marvelous light. And once you weren't a people and now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy and now you have. 
Some of the deepest wounds in life are because we experience rejection. Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter how. But rejection's a powerful force, and what it creates in us is a big wound. And we look to heal the wound, and the best way to heal the wound of rejection is through acceptance. And so we will look for all kinds of things to fill that wound. Sometimes these things are subtled, nuanced. We're going to do almost anything for acceptance. The wound is too great. So, at the beginning of this, God says you're a chosen people. This is remarkable. Whether or not you feel it or not doesn't change the fact that you're chosen. That God chose you. When I was a kid, through my childhood, through my uh, teens... When people would meet me with my parents, people that maybe hadn't met them for a while, kind of knew that maybe they'd had a third kid, teachers, parents of friends. See, there's a fairly large gap in years between my sister and I and my brother and I. I can't tell you the amount of times where people sort of put that together and would look at me and say, oh, you're the accident. Well, thank you for that. That makes me feel better. (laughs) I heard, oh, you're the mistake. I can't begin to tell you how many times I heard that. Who says that kind of stuff to people? Apparently, the fact that there was so many years between us had to be explained to me in a way that made me feel like I was an accident. Now, my parents loved me like crazy, and so did my brother and sister, and I knew I was part of a family, so that stayed in tension with me for years. I know I'm loved. Planned Parenthood, maybe not so strong. (laughs) But it wasn't an accident. I was loved. But I heard this message way the heck too many times. As I got older, as I matured, sort of, I'm never feeling terribly mature in this area, but as I matured in my relationship with God, recognizing there wasn't anything about me that was a mistake, that I was not an accident. Now, if you want to know if you're really chosen, get a load of this verse. Ephesians 1 and 4. It's one of my most favorite verses. Before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, he'd already chosen you. Now, this ought to blow your hair back. Before atoms, before cells, before the powerful words of God ignited The creation of the universe, he chose you. It's not me, it's God's words. He chose you. So when we're talking identity, let's start there. You're chosen by the most powerful God before he made. You know, we're talking about this building, walls, no walls, building, no building before the ground that we're going to be talking about, before any of it, you were already in his mind and already chosen. Peter goes on to tell us further, 
in this same section. So this section that we read was Peter writing to the church in Asia Minor uh, to Christians. Now, things had gone sideways for them. They were influenced by a particular sect called Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that, uh, well, they believed that everything that you saw here in the world, everything that was real, wasn't real. But mostly what they believed was that through kind of existential thought, you could acquire a greater understanding, and therefore you could be actually saved. But you had to be special. And it was kind of a mind thing. But some people got it and some people wouldn't. Which was completely against Jesus' teaching and completely against what Peter had shared with them. Salvation is for all, all, all. It's not a small all, it's a capitals all, all. So Peter was sending this letter to say we've got to get some stuff right. Um, anyways, he talks about us being precious and of extreme value. He talks about a holy nation. He talks about, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, and belonging to God. So holy and belonging are words that innately provide us with the understanding that we're extremely valuable to God. Now, if things are of extreme value, there's a couple of things that have to happen, I think. They don't have to happen. I, my some of my, my kids try to encourage me to not speak in absolutes, so every once in a while I'm going to change that. There's two things that I think are important when you're defining value. The first one is who owns it. Who's the owner of the thing? I have a great pair of running shoes at home. They're purple. They're 10 years old, and they almost look like new. So what does that tell you about how much I run? I'm a walker. Let's put my shoes up for auction. And beside my shoes, let's have a pair of Usain Bolt's shoes. Do you know who he is? Like the best sprinter in the world, or was? I mean, incredible. Ann Cop's running shoes. Usain Bolt's shoes. Whose shoes are of more value? I mean, you might like me and think I'm really great and everything, but if we're talking about the running shoes that were owned by someone who was an outstanding runner... It's not going to be my shoes you're going to buy. We are owned by God. We are his. He loves us. You know, the other piece um, around value also has to do with how much somebody's willing to pay for something. Let's say you have a beautiful dinette set at home. It's gorgeous, and you're trying to sell it on eBay. Guess how many people are buying it? Exactly. You're shaking your head. Not many. You think it's worth five grand. You can't even get 500 for it. The value of something is what it's worth. That piece of art on the wall is only as valuable as what somebody wants to pay for it. A one-bedroom condo at the bottom of Lonsdale worth $2 million? Is, it, is that its value? Well, only if somebody wants to pay that. How valuable something is, is who owns it and what they're willing to pay for it. So, Who's your owner, or have you chosen something better? You are a treasured possession, 
and you're precious to God. And if you want to know what you're worth, all you have to do is take a look at the cross. You want to know how much you're worth. Look at God the Son dying on the cross for you with his arms stretched open. And he looks at you and he says, I would rather die than live without you. That's how much you are valued. That's the price for you. There isn't any other sacrifice in the history of the universe with the implications that this brings to your life for value. The consequence for our sin, Jesus pays. I'm going to pay it. I'd rather die than live without you. Jesus dying as ransom from the destruction of sins. All those tapes you play in in your head, the lies that you believe about yourself, how those have altered your identity, whether directly or subtly, there's no ransom. There is no price paid big enough other than this to let you know your tremendous value. So we're valued because of who belongs to us and how much we are worth. Peter goes on to say that we are, uh, we're now a people, but we once weren't. Once we didn't have an identity, and now we do. As believers in God's family, We are, and the Bible tells us, joint heirs with Christ, like brothers and sisters together in the family of God. And he's not ashamed of his family. God doesn't shake his head and say, whoa, what was I thinking when I made them? He's not ashamed or feels embarrassed, like sometimes we might at big family get-togethers, you know, that kind of unusual relative. We've all got them. Don't look right now. We're, we're a little ashamed. We're not quite sure what they're going to do. We're feeling a little uncomfortable. Holy cow. He doesn't see his family that way. He's not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by you. Because you are completely and utterly loved by him. He loves in two particular ways. Now the first verse that's up here was one of my mom's favorite verses. Uh, And Bill read it at her service. So I want you to think about the thing that you, in your mind, and maybe in your belief system, would separate you from God and see if you can find it on that verse. And you won't. It's not there. There is nothing that's going to slow down God's love. There's nothing that's going to make it smaller. It's not conditional. It's not going to tire. You can't logic it away. There isn't anything that gets in the way of this kind of love. It's unfailing. It's not performance-based. And it And it's a logical outcome of what we've already talked about. You're chosen, you're valued, you're loved. 
These things go together. They build chosen, valued, and loved. You being lovable could be something that you spend a lot of time thinking about yourself in, but actually it's not really about us. It's about him. It's part of our nature, I suppose, to spend a lot of time navel-gazing and thinking about ourselves. And as part of our identity, uh, the shift into thinking about what God thinks about us is uh, more important. Peter goes on, and if there's sort of another identity marker, or you've noticed that I've used some fingerprints about here. Once you didn't know God's mercy, and now you have received it. God providing us with total forgiveness is very challenging for us because we're actually not super good at it ourselves. We're not terribly great at forgiving one another. It's not logical, and it doesn't make sense. Sometimes we sort of suspend judgment for a while. Sometimes we kind of tuck it away. But when a hurt happens again, when a tape replays in our mind, we bring it back again, and sometimes in its worst, it's used as a weapon. We think of those tapes that people have said, and we play them over and over and over again in our mind, and we reignite the fact that we have not forgiven. Forgiveness is hard for us. But God doesn't say things like, really? I thought we'd already been through this. I thought you'd have learned by now. I am running out of patience for you. We have been over this and over this and over this and over this, and you keep doing it, and you keep coming back to me and asking for forgiveness. He never speaks to us that way. He doesn't even think about us that way. Maybe you see God as sort of a lucky rabbit's foot, you know? When things aren't going well in my life, you know, I'm paying the consequence for something I've done. He doesn't deal with us that way either. In fact, uh, this was a verse that just grabbed my attention as a kid because I, I tend to live in pictures. So it's from Psalm 103, and it says, As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your sins. Y'all, many of you know that. But as a kid, I keep thinking east. So how far the east is from the west? Well, the more east you go, how far away does the west keep going? Right? And if you get to the west, how far does the east keep going? Do you get it? You can't get it. God doesn't just forgive. He absolutely uh, obliterates sin. There's no condemnation. He doesn't hold things against us. The love piece, the this is what you're worth piece, the crucifixion piece, again, the forgiveness is part of that for us. And the God who forgives your sin because you're precious, the blood of Christ has set us free. And you might be thinking right now as you're listening to this, and this is a super nice talk, thanks so much. Yeah, I know all this. Really? But I would suggest that as we look through our identities and as we struggle, 
we all have a something. We all have something in our minds that we drag around with us that gets in the way of God has made us to be. You know, he's not surprised by anything we do. It's not like he says, holy cow, I didn't see that coming. The same, oh, that's right, because he chose you before the foundation of the world, right? He already knows. There's nothing that's a surprise. He's already gone ahead in choice. He's already gone ahead in value. He's already gone ahead in love, and he's already gone ahead in forgiveness in terms of how he sees you and what your identity is in him. It's interesting. Uh, Oh, I didn't know I was there already. Okay, there we go. In this section of scripture, Peter, as inspired by God, tells us that we're priests. Now, as a kid growing up uh, in a brethren church, I heard the phrase, the priesthood of all believers, a lot. This would be another one of those things that would blow my hair back. That God calls me, as a Christian, a priest. And this is where getting your identity clear is important. A priest is someone who represents God to people and people to God. That's quite remarkable. It's not something that I would jump to say that I would want to do. But he says, and he tells me, that that's actually part of my identity. This is not a hoop-jumping behavior thing. I'm not coming around to now you have to do. This is who he says we are. So, as a priest, my identity, having been chosen, having been loved and valued and forgiven, when my identity is locked solidly in that, then my capacity to choose and accept you and yours for one another, my capacity to value you regardless of how you present in the world, my capacity to love, my capacity to forgive, becomes an outgrowth of my identity in God. This is not about me trying really hard to do a bunch of Christian things. Identity rooted in God, and that chosen part in particular, at least it is for me, is where this all begins. Otherwise, we run into a trap of doing a bunch of stuff. Identity is who you are as you work your way through life. If you have a difficult time being happy for other people, Maybe that's because you feel so crummy about yourself that there's no space to be happy for anybody else. Maybe when you continue to remember the things that have been done to you that you didn't like, maybe the depth of understanding of what it meant for God to value so much that he died isn't something that's penetrated past your mind. Maybe, maybe not. 
being asked to step into the role of priest where we care for one another, when we do the very things that he says you are in me, cannot be done by ourselves. And he knows that, and he wouldn't want us to. I don't think the reason he wants us to do it on uh, without him is because he knows it'll just end up becoming a bunch of behavior-jumping things. And he says that he is going to be there to help us. We aren't competent in ourselves, says Corinthians. We're competent in God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've heard that for a long time. So what's the thing? What is it that you want to do? What is it you feel called to do? Interesting. A priest has a vocation. And the Latin word for vocation is voce. Now, in case you're impressed, the only Latin I know is the stuff that's in Christmas carols that we sing every once in a while. I don't know anything about Latin, but I just happened to read that one because I spent some time getting prepped. So voce is voice or calling. What is it you've been called to do? Now, when I was a teenager, I don't know how many seminary things at youth retreats I sat through trying to find out what my, uh, what my uh, gifts were and what, my, what, what was I supposed to do with my life. <laughs> and I began to wonder at times if it wasn't like a super bad Easter egg hunt that God had set up where you can't possibly find the egg. And it's not. We have his word in terms of what we're supposed to do. But identity in God through Jesus Christ gives you everything you need to know about what to do. Because it's an outgrowth of who you are. You are chosen. You are valued. You are loved. You are forgiven. And now you are called. What's your calling? So I'm an elementary school principal. It's what I do. But my calling is those five things embedded. And I'll tell you right now, it's not easy because I work with all kinds of people, hundreds a day. And they all come with their own stuff, and some days it's really hard. But when I sit across from the angry parent or the sad teacher or the family who's broken, and I reflect on what God sees me to be and in my calling I look at them as chosen valued, loved and forgiven and I ask for help God steps into it consistently and the times that I don't do that are when I usually create more of a mess identity theft you can buy all kinds of things to put on your computer The bank will do all kinds of things to make sure nobody finds out about your password and nobody gets your money or your social insurance number or anything. I have one password. If anybody gets it, I'm cleaned out. So I went on to the Government of Canada site and I googled identity theft and we got the RCMP and they come up with four general things around identity theft. It means uh, preparatory. There was a plan to acquire and collect somebody else's personal identification for criminal purposes. Criminal purposes, stealing it, using it in some way. 
We are not to be afraid of our world. We need to be vigilant. But we need to be careful that it's not being stolen. And so here are four suggestions that I kind of grouped together based on what I read about the RCMP. First thing is you've got to recognize it. Second thing is you've got to report it. Third, you've got to check that information often. And fourthly, you have to protect your information. So this is all related to personal information about you, largely financial. But guess what? It actually works with what we're talking about today. Do you recognize when your identity is getting stolen? Has somebody taken it away? Has something happened that caused an erosion in who you are? Have you been dented? Maybe it was well-meaning and somebody just said something to you like, oh yeah, you're that accident. They thought they were funny. Being aware, looking at these five aspects of personality as identity in God, can you recognize it when it's getting taken? So start there. The second one would be reporting it. The greatest authority that you want to go to who's going to help you with your identity would be the God that made you. The best prayer in this situation would be one word, which is help. It's happened, and I need your help. The third thing is to check your identity often. This is a challenge because the influences that can shift our identity can be subtle a whole collection of small compromises. And I say that carefully because you don't want to become legalistic and so rule-bound that you don't think about what you're doing. But small changes, small beliefs that you begin to believe about you because of what something said, a magazine, the latest thing, the memory of a past comment. Checking your identity often. Is this God truth? Is it a lie? Should I put that decision on pause and think about God and who I am in him? Be vigilant. Be vigilant. And the fourth area of identity theft would be to protect yourself. Who do you listen to? What do you think about? What tapes do you play? What have you rock-solidly believed about yourself, which when you hold in the light of being chosen and valued and loved and forgiven and called a priest, does not fit? Protecting yourself is spending time in your Bible Protecting yourself is spending time in God's presence. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're praying three times a a, a day, but it could be that you're practicing the presence of God and awareness that he's with you everywhere you go and in everything you do. He's just there. There's a flow. Practicing the presence of God. There's a song um, that Mumford & Sons had out a number of years ago, and one of the lines in it, Uh, which is also one of my favorite things, is lend me your eyes and I'll change what you see. 
And as you think about protection and checking your identity and reporting it and watching to see that you are living what God gave you already. The plan he has for you, it's not my plan. You're not me, I'm not you. He actually has given us very different and unique abilities. And that's part of him. It's an artist. It's the creativity of who you are and asking you to be who he's asked you to be as one who is. Do you remember them? I'm a teacher. So what was the first one? Chosen. What was the second one? Valued. Loved. Forgiven. And called. A priest. Capable. Exactly. So when I look at myself, and uh, it's interesting, you know, whenever you're asked to speak, and it's not something I do very often, thanks be to God, but, um, uh, and, I, and maybe it's the same for Todd, I don't know. But you end up speaking about the thing that you actually need the greatest help with. So if I'm standing here talking to you about identity and you think, wow, no, not so wow. I struggle with this all the time. I have to take those tapes and I have to bring them in front of God and say, no, no, this is what you told me. I have to take the mistakes I made, the sin I've had, the stuff that comes back every once in a while. And I have to look at the cross and realize that the price of my value is unbelievable. So when I struggle with this, and when you struggle with this, when we're aware that we've kind of moved away, I told James one day in the car, I said, I don't like how I am right now. He had an interesting word for it, but I won't tell you that. He said, I just don't like how I am right now. So lend me your eyes and I'll change what you see. God, who do you see me to be? Okay. And then the biggest piece, God, give me that ability to see people the same way, not as less than, not as over there. I have at the bottom of my notes, after I talked about the seeing God the way we do, that I, in big bold letters it says, stop talking. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for your attention. Um, Allison is going to play a song, and we were going to have communion, but we're not. Um, you know, we're flexible. Things changed. There's no bread. I don't know what happened. But anyways, we're not having communion. Uh, but what we're going to do with just a bit of space, you know when something's over, and it's over, and then there's a song, and then there's the benediction, and then bang, we're out for coffee, and people are figuring out what they're doing for lunch. We have a very thin amount of space sometimes to sit in things. So Allison's going to sing this song, and I don't mean to create something unnatural. If you want to leave, you know, of course, you're big people. You can do whatever you want. But my encouragement would be um, that in this little space that's created with this song, that you take it to think. Spend some time in the space. You can think about whatever you want. But maybe it's time to refresh our memory on being loved and valued, forgiven, priests, 